Well, if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling this evening, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 1. We're just continuing our study in this letter. We're going to look at verses 12 to the end of the chapter, but can we just take as our text the words of verses 12 and 13? So Philippians 1 and verse 12, what Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Last week we began our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians and we began by uh, considering the cover of a commentary and the cover of the commentary it had a promise and we said that it was the promise you could say of this letter. We said that the promise of Philippians is the same promise on the words of the commentary and the words of the commentary said this is for you to read gazing at the joy of gospel faith. This is for you to feed helping you to meditate on God's word day by day. This is for you to lead, equipping you to teach the Bible to others. This is Philippians for you. And we said last week that the promise Paul had for the Philippians is that this letter is for you to read, feed, and lead. Read, feed, and lead. It's for you to read about having joy in the gospel it's, you to, it's for you to feed upon the joy of the gospel and it's for you to lead others to have that joy in the gospel. But then the question arises, how do you do that? How do you read, feed and lead? How do you enable yourself and how do you enable others to have joy in the gospel? How can you have joy in the gospel when you're living in a place like Philippi, a place that's wealthy, A place that's worldly and everyone around you is trying to find joy in everything else but the gospel. How do you read, feed and lead people to have joy in the gospel? Well in this section Paul answers that question. He he answers the question, how do you read, feed and lead people to have joy in the gospel? Because having expressed his pastor's heart in the opening verses of this letter where Paul said that he had a deep love and a deep affection for the Philippians. And he thanked them for their partnership in the gospel. He thanked them for their progress in the gospel. And then as we saw near the end of of the section in verses 9 to 11, Paul had this prayer for them to be a gospel-centered church. But in this section that we're looking at this evening, Paul reminds the Philippians about the need for preaching the gospel. And what Paul says in this section is that the only way for a church, or the only way that a church is going to read, feed, and lead people to have joy in the gospel is to preach the gospel. Because the only way to advance the gospel is to preach the gospel. And in this passage, what we'll see is that Paul highlights four areas of preaching. He highlights four areas of preaching. And I'll just give you those four areas. Providential preaching, pretend preaching, progressive preaching, and personal preaching. So four areas of preaching. Providential preaching, pretend preaching, progressive preaching, 
and personal preaching. So if we look first of all at providential preaching. Providential preaching. Look again at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the providence that Paul found himself in when he wrote this letter to the Philippians it wasn't a providence that he had planned. Because as you know, when Paul wrote this letter, he was nearly 800 miles away and he was in a prison in Rome. He was chained night and day to a Roman soldier awaiting to hear if he would live or die. And yet what Paul confesses in verse 12, it shows us that Paul was a man who lived life with an eternal perspective. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul confesses that the providence of being imprisoned in Rome has actually worked together for good. Paul, he always wanted to go to Rome. He always wanted to, to preach the gospel in Rome. He wanted to go to Rome as this open-air preacher, preaching the gospel in all the, the amphitheaters and all the public arenas. But instead of doing that, Paul, he still went to Rome, but he went as a, as a prisoner in chains. And you know, despite this difficult providence, Paul continued to preach. But his crowds that he preached to, the message that he delivered, it wasn't to, to large crowds. It was to just the emperor's guards, one on one. In fact, Paul tells us that he preached the gospel to the whole imperial guard, the whole praetorian guard. And now, the praetorian guard was an elite unit of the Roman army that served as the personal bodyguards to the Roman emperor. And yet what's amazing is that Paul was given this opportunity to preach the gospel to them. In fact, Paul was chained to them, chained with handcuffs, Handcuffs that would only have stretched 18 inches. So he was a foot and a half away from them. At any one time, day or night, Paul was just 18 inches from a Roman soldier. And Paul explains to us that he saw this not as an obstruction to preaching the gospel. He saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. Steve Lawson says in his commentary, he says, these high-level soldiers... They became a captive audience to Paul. He is chained to them, but they are also chained to him. And he says, Paul had a new congregation with every new shift. Paul had encountered a difficult providence, but instead of viewing it as an obstruction to preaching the gospel, Paul viewed it as an opportunity to preaching the gospel. It was providential preaching. And Paul explains that the whole Praetorian Guard, they heard the gospel. And many of them were converted. They became brothers. That's how he describes them in verse 14. And what's remarkable is that it was because of Paul's chains that many in Caesar's household were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That would never have happened if Paul had preached in the amphitheaters of Rome. 
But this was the Lord's providential plan. And instead of viewing it as the obstruction, he viewed it as an opportunity. The opportunity to preach the gospel. And you know, we should learn from Paul here. That no matter what difficult circumstances we encounter in our lives. The Lord has put it there. And the Lord has put us there. And we shouldn't see it as an obstruction to the gospel. Or as an obstruction to witnessing for Christ. We should view it as an opportunity. An opportunity for spreading the gospel. And witnessing for Christ. Because my friend. We worship and we serve a great God. And a great king. And he can use us to advance the gospel. In any and in every situation. You know we often say that. We often maybe say it with a. Like a passing comment. Nothing is impossible with God. But do we really believe it? Do we live that out? Do we believe that the Lord can use us to advance the gospel wherever we are? Whether we're a teacher in a secular classroom or we're an employee in a worldly environment or we're just we're a parent confined to their home with their children or we're just someone who's retired and they still have all these things that they need to do in their busy day. Because, you know, what we have to see here and what Paul's providence ought to remind us is that the Lord has providentially placed us where we are at this time in our lives and we are there to advance the gospel. We're not there by chance. We're not there by accident. We are there by a divine appointment for the purpose of advancing the gospel. And your circumstances today, whatever they may be, They're not to be seen as an obstruction to the gospel. They're to be seen as an opportunity for the gospel. And you know, my friend, when you see that the situation you're in today is the Lord's sovereign purpose, plan, and providence, when you see it, and when you believe it, it will give you this confidence in the Lord that will make you seek to live your life in order to advance the gospel. And that's why Paul tells the Philippians here what has happened to him. Because he can see in the lives of the Praetorian guards that they now have this boldness. They have this confidence in the gospel. The church in Rome has been filled with this new boldness, this new confidence to speak the word of God without fear, the fear of man. And Paul confirms this. He says this in verse 14. And most of the brothers, he says, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And what's so clear here is that Paul, he isn't complaining about his providence. No, he wants the Philippians to be confident Christians because of his providence. He wants the Philippians to be confident in the gospel. He wants them to be confident that the Lord is able to work in and through all our providences for our good and ultimately for his glory. And so Paul writes in this section explaining that the only way to advance the gospel is through preaching, providential preaching. But then secondly, Paul warns about pretend preaching. Pretend preaching. He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know, it's often said that every great preacher has many critics. Uh, most preachers have their wives as the greatest critic. But every preacher has many crit- every great preacher has many critics. Uh, the reformer John Calvin, he had his critics. He was exiled from his pulpit by his own congregation after only two years as their minister in Geneva. Jonathan Edwards, who was in America, he was voted out of his pastoral charge after 22 years by 90% of his congregation. Spurgeon, he suffered many discouragements and even depression because of the criticism he received from those in his own denomination. And so it's safe to say that history demonstrates that every preacher who preaches the truth will receive criticism. And the same is true for the Apostle Paul. Because as Paul explains here, there were other preachers within the city of Rome who were envious and they were jealous of Paul's preaching. And what's sad about all this is that these other preachers, they weren't heretics. They weren't preaching a false gospel. We might be tempted to think that they were, but they weren't. They were genuinely proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were preaching Christ and him crucified. But the problem wasn't with the message. The problem was with their motive. Because these preachers in Rome, they were proclaiming Christ, but their proclamation was driven, as Paul says, by envy. Their enthusiasm and their energy for preaching, it didn't arise out of a love for Jesus and a desire to advance the gospel. No, their enthusiasm and their energy, it came from this desire to be a better preacher than Paul. And Paul says they desire to preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And the way they did it was by putting down on Paul. And I say that because the word envy that Paul uses, it refers to a feeling of jealousy that was expressed by attacking someone's reputation and casting doubt on their character. And it seems that these jealous preachers, whoever they were, they were saying that Paul was in prison because he was a disobedient minister. He was there because it was his own fault. They weren't in prison, but he was in prison. And they claimed that if Paul was truly walking with the Lord, then he wouldn't be in prison. And you know, it's sad to think that other men who preached the same gospel as Paul and stood up for the same truth, that they would try and take down their brother in Christ. But you know what happened then? And there's nothing new under the sun. Jealousy in ministry, it's an awful thing. Envy between preachers or elders or Christians, it's not God-honoring. And what's unbelievable is that these preachers who weren't in prison, they viewed Paul as a threat. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. He's chained to a Roman soldier day and night, waiting to see if he's going to live or die. But instead of wasting his opportunities for the gospel, he's now using them. And yet his fellow laborers in the gospel, 
they're criticising Paul for it and shunning him because they're jealous of him. And, and who knows what they were jealous of. It could have been his apostolic authority. It could have been his intelligence. It could have been his gifted speech. It could have been his influence and his passion for the gospel. Whatever it was, these preachers considered Paul to be a threat to their ministries. And what's frightening is that Paul explains in verse 7, 17 how mistaken they were and that their motives were all wrong. He says, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul explains that the motives of these preachers, it wasn't to promote Christ. Their motive was to promote themselves. And it seems that these preachers, although they preached the truth, although they preached Christ, they were only doing it to see what they could get out of it themselves. Though they exalted Christ in their words, they used their ministry to exalt themselves and to humiliate Paul. They used and abused their position to shape public opinion against Paul and to slander him and to discredit his character and ultimately to promote themselves. Their motives were all wrong. It was ungodly. So unlike Christ. And you know, our motives... They are as important as our message. Because it not only matters what we say and do. It also matters why we do it. But the only motive a Christian should ever have. The only motive a preacher or an elder or a Christian should have. Is the motive for God's glory. We should never have a motive to promote ourselves. Or to exalt ourselves. Or to give ourselves a name. No, our motive should always be to lift up the name of Jesus and to give him the glory. My friend, our motive should be the motive of the psalmist. As we were singing in Psalm 115, that it's not unto us, Lord, not to us, but do thou glory take. That should be our motive. Now, although there were some pretend preachers, there were others who were genuine. Paul speaks about them. He says they preach Christ from goodwill. They have pure motives, he says. They don't spread the, the anti-Paul propaganda. In fact, he says in verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And you know, what better testimony to have? What a better motive to possess than to be known as someone who preaches and lives out the gospel with a pure love for Jesus Christ and a passion to spread the good news. And you know, Paul, he's so thankful that these genuine preachers, they're willing to stand with him and to stand up for him. They knew that Paul was in prison not because the Lord was chastising him. They knew he was there for the defense of the gospel. And they knew that Paul was someone who remained true to the message of the gospel. And that's what we need today. That's what we need in our day and generation. Because, I don't know, there's far too much squabbling and envy and bitterness and division within the church of Jesus Christ. And you know, as Paul is saying here, none of it serves to advance the gospel. It doesn't do the cause of Christ any good. And so what Paul is reminding us, as he reminded the Philippians, what he's reminding us is, if we want to advance the gospel in our communities, 
then we need to stand together. We need to do it together, not tearing one another down. That's not an option because it's not God honouring and it's not Christ exalting. Paul is saying if you want to progress in preaching, you need to rid yourself of gossip and focus upon faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know, what was Paul's response to all of this? How did he respond to all this opposition and conflict? What did he say to the pretend preaching? He says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says what really matters, and what is of the utmost importance, is that the name of Jesus is exalted. And you know, it's such a witness and a testimony that even though he had been thrown in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, his fellow laborers in the gospel, they're slandering him. And yet Paul is rejoicing. He rejoices knowing that Christ is being proclaimed. And you know, it only demonstrates and shows to us the humility of Paul. That he rejoiced in his suffering because he knew that through it the name of Christ was advancing. And you know this raises the question for us. Whose reputation is more important to us? Is it our reputation or our redeemer? For Paul it was the redeemer. But whose reputation is more important to us? Is it our reputation or our redeemer? And so Paul is talking about the way to advance the gospel is through preaching. He talks about providential preaching, pretend preaching. But then he talks about progressive preaching. Progressive preaching. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so as Paul sits in his Roman prison writing this letter, he's certain, he knows for sure that what has happened to him it has served to advance the gospel. But Paul also knows that he will soon be released from his imprisonment. One way or another. Either by death or dismissal. He, has to, he must await Caesar's decision. But Paul is confident and he believes that whatever happens. His life is ultimately in the hands of the Lord. As one commentator says. He says, Paul lays his head on the pillow of God's sovereignty and he sleeps well on it. 
Paul lays his head on the pillow of God's sovereignty and he sleeps well in it. And you know, well, when we're worried, sleep is often the first thing to go. But the commentator reminds us that Paul sleeps well because as he says, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, he provides power, he provides peace to remain steadfast and to continue living, as he says himself, with that earnest expectation and hope. And what's remarkable is that Paul has this confidence, this assurance, this courage that Christ will be honoured in his body, whether it's by his life or by his death. Whether he lives or dies, Paul knows that the name of Christ will be exalted. And you know, it's clear from this statement that for Paul, he sees everything as an opportunity to magnify Jesus Christ. His imprisonment, he views it as advancing the name of Christ. His trial that he's awaiting, it's all about serving Jesus Christ. And even whether he lives or whether he dies, Paul sees these things as opportunities to progress the gospel. You know, what a perspective to have. To live life with an eternal perspective and to be so confident in Christ that whether in life or in death, your heart's desire above all things is for the gospel of Jesus Christ to progress. Now, when Paul speaks here, He's not boasting. He's not being arrogant. No, Paul's purpose is to affirm to the Philippians who were fighting their own battles and facing their own struggles in a wealthy and worldly city. Paul's, he is affirming to them that it's possible to rejoice in suffering. It's possible to have joy in the midst of sorrow. It's possible to view difficult providences as opportunities rather than obstructions. And you know, this is why Paul went on to say in verse 21, that well-known verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was once said that no one is ready to live until they are ready to die. No one is ready to live until they are ready to die. It's only only when you know that death will usher you into the presence of God that you will live life with a fearless faith. And you know, that's what Paul had. He had a fearless faith. He was a man staring death in the face and yet he lived with this unwavering mission and this desire to see the gospel advance. Death wasn't something that diverted his attention. It didn't cripple his faith. It didn't take him off course from his chief end because his chief end, Paul could see that all these things in his life, they were the Lord's appointment and they were there for the advancement of the gospel. And you know, it's such a personal statement that Paul makes here. For to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. To live, he says, is to advance the gospel. To live is to serve Jesus Christ. To live is to progress the good news. To live is all about Jesus. And that should be the testimony of every Christian. Because if Jesus Christ is our Lord, which he is, if Christ has redeemed us from death, which he has, if we have been 
brought from death to life, if we have received the light of the gospel, if our confession as a Christian is the same as Paul, where he says in Galatians 2, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If that's our testimony, if that's our confession as a Christian, then so should this. This should be our confession. For to me, to live as Christ. Christ should be our life. Christ should be everything about our lives. Everything about our lives should be about Christ. Everything we do, everything we attempt to do, it should be about seeking to exalt the name of Christ at every opportunity in order to advance the gospel. For to me, to live is Christ. Paul is saying, he's my priority. He's my focus. He's my first love. He's my all in all. For to me, to live is Christ. And you know, when we can say that wholeheartedly, it's then we'll have no problem saying the second half of the verse. To die is gain. To die is gain. But you know, my friend, if we're living for something or someone else other than Jesus Christ, if our first love is something or someone else other than Jesus Christ, then, you know, we'll see death as loss and not gain. We will view death as something to be dreaded and feared. Because it's only when we have that singular focus upon Jesus Christ that we will confess with Paul, for to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And what we see in the verses following is that it was actually a tough decision for Paul to make if he had to decide whether to live or to die. He says in verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. But even though it would have been a, a tough decision to make for Paul, if he had to decide to live or die, Paul knows that in reality it's not really his decision to make at all. Because he knows his life is in the Lord's hands. And that's why he says in verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And what Paul says here is that whether he lives or whether he dies, that's not his choice to make. But what's necessary for him. And what Paul is firmly persuaded about is that while he lives, his purpose is to serve the church of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that his purpose it's to build up other believers in their faith. And he says he's committed to ministering to other Christians, such as the Philippians and many other churches. And he says that he's committed to discipling them. That's what Philippians is all about. It's all about discipleship. He's committed to helping them in their faith so that they too will seek to advance the gospel where they are. And you know, what Paul is giving to us here is the perspective of 
living a Christ-centered life. Because when we live a Christ-centered life, we will live for Christ. We will see our purpose in life as one in which we are to serve the church of Jesus Christ. And we're to serve Jesus by serving others, by discipling them, by getting alongside them, by getting to know them, by helping them in their faith, But the overarching purpose in it all that Paul is talking about is that these people, whoever they were, the Philippians, that they progress in their faith and that the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to advance. It's, as he says himself, it's progressive preaching. It's the desire to progress through the preaching of the gospel. And so Paul He's saying that the only way to advance the gospel is through preaching. And he's spoken spoken about providential preaching, pretend preaching, progressive preaching. And then lastly, and very briefly, personal preaching. Personal preaching. He says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake, to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so as Paul brings this section of his letter to a conclusion, he encourages the Philippians to live Christ-centered lives. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, he says, make your life a sermon of God's grace. Be a walking Bible that speaks of God's salvation. Be a faithful witness that emulates and imitates Jesus Christ. Be a light in darkness that stands firm upon the word of God. Be consistent with your Christianity. Do not be a contradiction. Let your manner of life, he says, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul says to the Philippians, don't be afraid of your opponents. Don't worry about what they'll say. Don't be frightened to speak out and to speak up for Christ. Don't let anything be an obstruction to the gospel. But let everything be an opportunity for the gospel so that the gospel will advance and that Christ's kingdom will extend. And you know, it's wonderful to know that this all came from a prison. He's encouraging Christians to make the best use of their time in order to advance the gospel. And so Paul says in this section that the only way that the church is going to read, feed and lead people to have joy in the gospel is to preach the gospel. Because the only way to advance the gospel is to preach the gospel. And he says in this passage that there is four areas of preaching. Providential preaching, pretend preaching, 
progressive preaching and personal preaching. And so let us seek to apply this in our lives, that it may serve to advance the gospel in our own community here. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks for the encouragement in thy word. The encouragement that was written even in a prison cell. And we're reminded there, Lord, that the word one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all, more than we could ask or even think. We marvel that thou art a God who uses our opportunities. And we pray that thou wouldest give to us opportunities. Opportunities to speak about Jesus. Opportunities to to be a light in darkness. Opportunities, Lord, to be a faithful witness. And if need be, to stand on the side of Christ. O Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to, to emulate Jesus, to imitate him day by day, to love one another and to love Christ, that he would be our first love, that he would be our great desire, the desire in which we will will be able to confess like Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. O Lord, bless us together, we pray. Uphold us and strengthen us by thy grace and go before us for Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall bring our service to a conclusion by singing the words of Psalm 40. (coughs) Psalm 40 in the Scottish Psalter, page 260, we're singing from verse 8 down to the verse mark 10, the end of the double verse mark 10. Psalm 40 and verse 8. To do thy will I take delight, O thou my God that art, yea, that most holy law of thine I have within my heart. Within the congregation great I righteousness did preach, Lo, thou dost know, O Lord, that I refrained not my speech. Down to the end of the double verse, Mark 10 of Psalm 40. To God's praise.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore.